Hello and welcome to the Week 7 edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. 309 days. That's how long it was between wins for the Jets. No fan should have to wait that long for a win, but hey, the Jets got it done against the Cowboys. We'll get into that in a little bit, and we'll break down the Jets-Patriots game coming up on Monday night. In the second quarter, we'll talk with Jets center Ryan Khalil. I'm going to ask him about the offensive line issues, his close ties to one Patriots player in particular. I think you'll like that story. And his future as a Hollywood movie mogul. Yes, you heard me correctly. First, I want to spend a minute on Jets-Cowboys, the return of Sam Darnold. If you're a Jets fan, here's what you have to like the most about Darnold's performance. To me... A player is special when he has the ability to raise the level of those around him. And Darnold did that in this game. He did it from the first play on that uh, over route to Demarius Thomas for, I think, for 17 yards. All of a sudden, Demarius Thomas is part of the offense. Jamison Crowder is catching balls like he did in week one. Robbie Anderson is getting deep, and the offensive blind is blocking. Funny how that started happening when Darnold was at center. Now, I don't mean to dump on Luke Falk, but he wasn't doing that sort of stuff. That's why it was ridiculous to criticize Adam Gase for the way the offense was performing. Falk wasn't recognizing blitzes. He called the wrong formation a few times against the Eagles, so the players didn't even know where to line up. Gase never pointed this out publicly, but look, he fired the guy. He just outright cut him. So that tells you, Everything you need to know about how Gase felt that Falk was performing. Look, you know all the numbers on Darnold from Sunday's game, so I'm not going to rehash the stats. But to me, it was the subtle things that impressed me. You know, sliding in the pocket to avoid pressure. Recognizing a slot blitz down by the goal line and IDing Ryan Griffin as his hot receiver and then hitting him with a quick pass for a five-yard touchdown. I also like the way he used his eyes to manipulate the safety on one particular play, creating some open space for Crowder on a key 30-yard completion later in the game. Uh, th- that's what really impressed me the most is the nuanced things of the quarterback position, the instinctual things that he did, the stuff you really can't teach. Now, I will throw one stat out. at I dug this one up on NFL Next Gen Stats. 31% of his throws we're into tight windows. And when I say tight window, I mean one yard or less between the receiver and the defender when the ball arrives. So that that's not easy throwing. Those are tight, tight windows. And that was the second highest percentage in the league for a quarterback in week six. The highest percentage was Daniel Jones of the Giants. 48% of his passes were into tight windows. And who did he play against? It was the Patriots which gives me a good transition into Monday night's game, Jets and Patriots. Look, the Patriots, they have at least five guys who can play outstanding man-to-man coverage, led by cornerback Stephon Gilmore, who always shuts down Robbie Anderson. Uh, New England, they play a lot of man. That's the thing about Bill Belichick's. In some years, they're more zone-reliant. This year, they're playing man. 67% of the time, which is the second-highest total in the league, next to uh, only the Detroit Lions, who, by the way, are led by a Belichick disciple, Matt Patricia. So when the Patriots are playing man, 
Quarterbacks are only completing 46% of their passes, and they're averaging only 3.7 yards per drop back. These are sick numbers that the Patriots are playing. Uh, Darnold had a really good downfield passing attack against Dallas, but it's not going to be that easy against the Patriots. I mean, they are just, I mean, Darnold was killing it with his passes like 15 yards and longer in the air, but against the Patriots, when you try those passes, you're only completing 22% of your time, uh, time. And they just, just crazy stats. They, um, those longer passes, they have the league high eight interceptions. Devin McCourty is everywhere. Their safety. Uh, but in spite of all these numbers and all these trends, I'm not ready to crown the Patriots as some sort of great historic defense. Let's look at who they've played since Ben Roethlisberger in week one. These are the quarterbacks they faced. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Josh Rosen, Luke Falk, Josh Allen, Matt Barkley, Colt McCoy, and the aforementioned Daniel Jones. These are not exactly a murder's row in quarterbacks. So I think that has something to do with their really impressive defensive stats. I think the Jets are going to hold Brady. And his guys under 24 points in this game because, quite frankly, the New England offense is a bit of a work in progress. To me, the key comes down to can Darnold deliver an encore? Can he solve the Belichick riddle? Uh, quite frankly, I don't think the matchups favor the Jets. And it's never good when your left tackle might not play. That's Kelvin Beecham. Good chance he sits out with an ankle injury. And Belichick, you know him. He will go after that weakness like a shark sensing blood in the water. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're running stunts, overload blitzes to that side of the offensive line just to take advantage of Beecham's replacement, which will probably be Brandon Shell. Uh, to me, this has to be a big game for Le'Veon Bell. you got to try to get him in space. Also, Jamison Crowder's got to come up big again in the slots because New England will eliminate the outside receivers. Here's, here's a mind-blowing stat. When teams throw to the outside receivers, the Patriots have not allowed a touchdown pass, and they have six interceptions. It's a 27.0 passer rating. I don't not I do think the Jet receivers on the outside are going to do much in this game. So that's why Crowder has to step up. Darnold has to feed Crowder. So I expect this to be a very competitive game. I think Brady will figure out a way to win at the end. So I'm going to take Patriots by a field goal. Hopefully. The officials don't mess up this game like like they did this past Monday night's game, but I do expect an entertaining, very competitive game, Jets and Patriots, on Monday night, ESPN's Monday Night Football, and that is the end of the first quarter. And welcome back to the second quarter of the Green Room. Welcoming in our special guest this week, Ryan Khalil, starting center for the Jets. If this interview sounds like it was done in a locker room, that's because it was. Hey, here at the flight deck, we take you in the trenches. Here's Ryan Khalil. So Ryan, you've been in New Jersey, New York for a few months after spending your entire life in California and Charlotte. How's been the transition just from a, a lifestyle standpoint to go from there to New York? Yeah, it's... Uh... Well, I've been I've been on the East Coast for a little bit, but but obviously uh, New Jersey, New York's a little different than Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's been exciting. It's been challenging. Uh, my family's been commuting from the West Coast, so uh, that part of it's been real tough. But uh, you know, another t- on the other end of that, it's 
getting a lot of more opportunity to spend time with my teammates and and uh, getting to know the system better and, and the fans and the organization. So that that part of it's been great. Have you had to deal with any of the crazy New York and New Jersey drivers so far? It gets a, on gets a little crazy out there in traffic. Yeah, I uh, I I. Uh, I got a little brave and drove into the city on my own, and uh, that was an experience in and of itself. So uh, I definitely felt like a foreigner <laughs> trying to trying to find my way in and out and, and uh, probably got honked at more than I ever have in one day my whole life. And just in terms of the transition on the field, obviously we, you arrive, you know, in probably early August, you know, and there's a transition period there. What's it been like over the first few weeks of the season in terms of getting acclimated to the team, the system, and so forth? Yeah, I mean, it's been tough. I mean, we, you know, uh, you take for granted being in the same system for a long time. And, and uh, uh, so, you, you know, you, you sort of feel like a rookie all over again. And, and a lot of it is exciting, but it's frustrating right now. Uh, especially where we are as a unit. And so we're just continuing to work, uh, uh, continuing to get to know each other. Um, you know, offensive line is the one position where you really are so dependent on each other. So, you know, one guy doesn't do his part and, and, uh, and, and the whole thing kind of can unravel. So, um, you know, I think for us the biggest thing is just continue to work and, and uh, continue to get to know each other. And, and, and the more we can stay the course and keep the faith and continue to trust the process, I think we'll, we'll, we'll get to where we need to be. I've obviously never played offensive line, but I would think when you do something for one team for 12 years, that you probably learn a creature of habit and so forth. When you come to a new place, are there certain habits you have to break in terms of technique and things like that? Um, yeah, some of it and some of it not. Some of it, uh, you know, you have the ability to incorporate what you've done and what you've been successful with and, and some of it not. So um, a lot of that's still learning. And, and um, But we have the right scheme in place. We have the right coaches in place. It's just a matter of the guys up front executing. And so that's what we're continuing to work on and, and to continue to get better. You've had such an interesting career because you've been an NFC champion in Carolina, but you've also been on a 2-14. and 14, So you've seen both ends of the spectrum. How do you think those experiences maybe can uh, help you, you know, impart some of that wisdom, of, you know, with your new teammates? Yeah, I mean, I, obviously it gives you a lot of hindsight. So when you're, when, you're sort of, uh, when you're sort of in it, you get caught up with the emotional aspect of it. And so, you know, the thing I've tried to do with some of my teammates here is just help them understand that regardless of the circumstances you have to focus on what you can do to get better and that's the most important thing it's it's the definition of being a pro and and uh i learned it from the guys that uh i was under and and guys who didn't matter if we were losing or winning they they did their job each and every day like like they like we were oh no and there were no circumstances whatsoever so I think that's the biggest thing is just not getting caught up in the emotions of the game, regardless of where you are at what point in the game, whether you're down or you're up, you got to keep going to work because you can swing back up and you can easily have the other team swing back up when you, when you start to fall asleep at the wheel uh, and rest on your rolls of, of being up. So, um, and then the same thing goes for the season. And, and, uh, and that's the biggest thing. That's the thing you learn and, and, uh, um, and not getting caught up in what's being said about you externally or about the team externally. 
Um, those are things you can't control. So I think that's the biggest thing is just continuing to work, continue to control, and, and, and figure out a way to get it done. That's the most important thing. You've had a really interesting background. We talked a little earlier about, you know, growing up in Southern California. You went to high school in the Anaheim area, and Matthew Slater was one of your high school teammates, of course, yeah. the great special teams player from yeah. the Patriots. What was it like in high school? You guys must have had a pretty damn good team, I would think. And, and what position was he? Matt was a wide receiver, and I actually played tackle, yeah. offensive tackle. So, um, and then we went to rival schools. Yeah. Uh, now we're on rival teams again. So uh, it's fun. It's been fun to keep up with each other, and, yeah. and uh, I've stayed very close with Matt over the years. And uh, not a better human being than I know than Matt Slater. Uh, so you know all the success he's had, it's been well deserved. Um, but yeah, we you know we saw each other the last uh, game that we played, and and. Uh, I think we both sort of every time we we catch up, it's uh, it's a fun reflection of how far we've come and and uh, how quickly it all went yeah. by. Yeah, I've, I've met him a few times. He's a class act, yeah, and of course, is. good genes. You know, yeah. his his dad. Did you ever get a chance to meet his dad? Obviously, yeah. a Hall of Famer. Yeah, his dad coached me actually in high school. Really? Yes, yeah, so I spent a lot of time learning from him and and. Uh, between him and my own dad, I, I had a lot of football school and uh, before I before I got going in my career. Yeah, you mentioned that you you do come from a football family. Your brother, of course, has played in the league, Matt. And take me back to the day. I, correct me if I'm wrong. You guys were on the same team in Carolina, and I think your sister got a chance to sing the national anthem that particular day. What was that like, just from a, a family perspective? Yeah, it was. I mean, obviously, it was a it was a great moment for the whole family to be there and and. Uh, um, you know, same kind of situation with my brother Matt. Just you know, we we grew up around football, grew up under a football coach, uh, spent a lot of weekends, a lot of our free time learning the trade, and and uh, and it paid off for us. So um, that's another instance where we just uh, uh, obviously recognize how fortunate we've been to 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 do something a lot of people dream of and don't get the chance to do, but then to do it at a high level and do it for so long. So. Uh, you know, I think when we were together in Carolina, the one thing we always said was, let's not take it for granted. You never know what's going to end, which it did, you know. So, um, uh, but I'll cherish those moments forever. I know he will, and same with the rest of my family. You're really not only focused on your current career, but you're one of the guys in the NFL who seems to have a good eye toward the future. I know you're involved in a production company based out of uh, Los Angeles area. It's called Mortal Media. You're partners with Blake Griffin, the NBA star. How did that come about, you know, just to, you know, to try to get interested in the Hollywood scene? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's been a, a passion since uh, I was a kid. I started off doing claymation when I was younger, and, and uh, that was sort of a career I always wanted to pursue is storytelling. And uh, when I was at SC, took made the most of uh, the school there that they had there and the resources they had there, and, and really had a lot of experience and access to a ton of really talented people and successful uh, storytellers in, in the business. And, and uh, so that was always that was always the plan. And, and football uh, was always going to kind of be the back burner, and, and it and it flipped. Obviously, having success at SC and playing well, and, and having the opportunity to play in the NFL. Um, but every offseason, I'd go back and, and sort of uh, network or intern somewhere at a different studio. Um, and so that was always the dream. And then a couple years ago, a buddy of mine, Blake Griffin, was also pursuing some similar things. And we just decided to get together and do it together. We thought we could combine our resources and our, our relationships. And, and uh, because we were still focused on playing professional sports, we felt maybe the partnership would allow us to sort of... Mm-hmm you know, uh, 
uh, sort of teeter off each other's off seasons and, and really have somebody full time on it year round. And, and uh, so we set it up a couple years ago, and, and uh, we have a ton of projects in the work. And, and uh, getting obviously to a place pretty close here in my career where I'll be able to focus on that, and that'll that'll be the thing I transition to full time. I, I was going to say this is a total talk show host question, but do you have any projects you want to plug? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the ones that we that we have. Uh, you did something with the Rock, correct? Or, or are doing? Yeah, there's something we're developing with the Rock. Uh, um, we have uh, we have a movie right now we're developing with Disney. Uh, we're doing a remake of White Man Can't Jump with Fox, which is now Disney also. Right. Uh, uh, parent company of ESPN. Yes, correct. Uh, get, the, get that yeah. plug in there. <laughs> get that. That's, yeah. that's the. Uh, and then we have. Uh, uh, a couple movies that we sold with Paramount, uh, a couple TV shows in development. Uh, so it's been fun. It's it's uh, it's a it's a nice thing, and it's a it's not as a complex sort of uh, time consuming thing as as professional sports are. You know, it's a lot of uh, development setting up, and then you let the real storytellers, like the writers, go off and, and do all the work, and then you get to chime in on on your thoughts. Uh, so the producing aspect of it is is uh, it's sort of like being a GM, which right. is which is kind of fun. You get to work to put all the pieces in place, and and uh, so it's it's been great. It's we you know we Blake and I joke that we sort of feel like rookies again, really learning a new trade, and and um, and that's how we approach it. Try to be sponges and and really keep, kind of keep our head down and work. And I think that's the thing we've tried to apply from our professional sports world is is just uh, be a sponge. Put your head down, work as hard as you can, and and uh, and make mistakes. Not be afraid to make mistakes, and continue to fix them, and and move on to the next thing. Well, if you're ever looking to cast a uh, you know a sports writer in any of your projects, you you know where to call. You know you you know where to get me. <laughs> you got it. You got right. it. Thanks so much. Good luck on that, and most importantly, good luck on the rest of the season. Welcome to the third quarter. This is the Blind Side, our Twitter mailbag every week. Love you guys sending in some great questions. Let's start it off this week with a friend of mine. I actually got a chance to meet him in training camp this summer. He came all the way up to visit the Jets. It's at Southern Jet NC. His question is, they always say Belichick tries to take one main weapon away. And with Sam back and the Jets throwing longer routes, who do you think Belichick will focus on, Anderson, Crowder, or Bell? Well, the thing with Anderson is they always put Stephon Gilmore on him, and that pretty much neutralizes Robbie Anderson. So it allows Belichick, a free guy, to double up on someone else. And I think they'll most definitely focus on Le'Veon Bell. He does not want the Jets to Bell to beat them on the ground, running the ball. So I think Le'Veon would be the second guy he would focus on. Next question from at the real Kenny H. Do you think once Herndon is back, we'll see more two tight end formations? Griffin looked great last week. Love the podcast. Can't wait for the next one. Well, thanks, Kenny. I appreciate that kind words. Um, here's the thing with the two tight ends. This week against Dallas, the Jets lined up only 9% of the time in two tight ends. However, Against Philly and New England, the previous two games, it was 24% and 23%. Not hard to figure out what they were doing there. With Luke Falk at quarterback, they wanted their base offense on the field. Uh, rather, they wanted the opponent's base defense on the field because they did not want nickel. 
Uh, Gase just felt that Luke Falk wasn't equipped enough, not, not sophisticated enough in reading defenses to be facing everything that could happen with a nickel defense. So they wanted to keep it simple and they wanted the base on the field. They also wanted more pass protection. So they went with the two tight ends. Now that Herndon is back or will be back perhaps this week, maybe next. I do think you'll see him worked in slowly, probably only in passing downs at first. Once he gets his legs under him, then maybe, yes, more two tight end formations with a much better receiver in Chris Herndon. Next question, at Matt Romano, 19. What's the market for Lennon Williams? What would the Jets hope to get in return for him? I do think the Jets are open, open to shopping Leonard Williams. What would it take? I mean, they're not going to get equal value back because he frankly isn't having a productive year. I think they would do it for a second round pick. Uh, are they going to get a second rounder? I highly doubt it. I think teams will probably be offering a four to, you know, try to meet in the middle, get some middle ground, maybe a third rounder. But I think the Jets will pull the trigger on this deal if they get what they want or if they get something where they can justify moving a guy who was once the sixth pick in the draft. Next question comes from at business stash. How, he proposes a Leonard Williams trade. How about Leonard and something else for Trent Williams? Uh, do you think the Jets would do that? Uh, let me, I, no, I know. I don't even think Washington would do it because here's why. I mean, first of all, from the Jet perspective, you're giving up a 25 year old defensive lineman to get a 31 year old offensive lineman. Um, and you know, the other way, looking at it from Washington's perspective, Williams has a year left on his contract. Leonard does not. He'll be a free agent after the season, but flipping it back to the Jet perspective, I don't think they would do it. Um, you know, even though they'd have Williams under contract for next year at twelve and a half million, he'll be thirty-two years old by then. You heard Adam Gase talk recently about a Kaleche Osemele, older offensive lineman. You know, they just get beat up, a lot of wear and tear, and you know, I, I think it's a little bit risky. I don't think the Jets are you know in that stage where they could just bring in a guy for a year or even for the remainder of this year and say. You know, this is a good trade for us. Williams would take him a few weeks just to get up and running again. So, no, I don't think that would be a trade that would happen. Uh, and the last question from at sports underscore FI3ND. Should we be careful with the narrative that Sam will be the cure-all for everything that is deficient with the team? In your opinion, what in what ways does he cover the holes present on the team? Uh, well, you saw it on Sunday against Dallas. Uh, you know, he gets rid of the ball, so that makes life easier for the offensive line. At times, he'll hold the ball for a split second longer to buy extra time, and that makes life easier for the wide receivers because when he slides in the pocket and holds the ball for that extra fraction of a second, it allows the receivers to get to a second, in some cases, a third window. And usually those windows are open as opposed to, say, a Luke Falk who's throwing into the first window, which is more often than not closed. So those are ways that Sam Darnold can impact the offense and make it better. And you're right. He's not a cure-all. This could have been a very different game for the Jets. If Amari Cooper doesn't get injured, I don't think the Jets are winning this game. But, you know, he he did get hurt and the Jets won. So I'm not going to try to, you know, 
poo-poo their accomplishment. But you're right. Sam is not a cure-all. The team has to run the ball better. This is a team that has not run the ball for 100 yards in any game. Can't live that way in the NFL. Got to get Le'Veon Bell going. And if you do, then you have a really balanced offense. That is the end of the third quarter. You know, we're in trading season right now. The NFL trading deadline is October 29th. And it's already starting to trickle out some big trades on Tuesday night. The Jaguars sending Jalen Ramsey to the Rams for a couple of number one picks. So this is going to occupy the NFL landscape over the next few days. And I think the Jets will be heavily involved in a lot of these talks. And it gets me to thinking about past big trades in Jet history. And some of these underscore how, you know, we cover them. And as sports writers, we have lives outside of football. And for me, I framed some of these big trades by stuff that I was doing at that particular time when the trade went down. And a lot of times it wasn't really football related. Uh, in 1993, when the Jets, I know we're going back here a ways, but in 93, when the Jets traded for Boomer Esiason, I was actually on vacation in Hawaii. I was in Maui at a restaurant and saw it on a newspaper headline, this was way before Twitter, and saw that the Jets had traded for Boomer Esiason, uh, a local, of course, from Long Island. So that's how I found out about that trade. Uh, one of the more interesting, uh, maybe maybe the biggest trade in Jet history was the Brett Favre trade in August of 2008. Certainly there were a couple of weeks of rumors that the Jets were going to make that deal with the Packers. I was coaching a night game, a Little League baseball game at Baseball Heaven on Long Island, which is a a huge uh, facility out east. It was a night game about eight or nine o'clock at night when I got a text from someone suggesting to me that that trade was going to go down. I bolted our dugout in the middle of the game. Luckily, I had a very good assistant manager who took over the team. I jumped in the car, raced home about a 25 minute drive to get home. My young daughter was with me and she kept reminding me the entire way home that I was over the speed limit. But uh, this was a <laughs> highly anticipated trade. Got home and waited a few hours before the actual trade went down, which was after midnight. And so, yeah, I was coaching literally. I don't remember if we won or lost that night, but I do remember the uh, details of the Jets getting Brett Favre. And when they made the uh, Darrell Rivas trade in uh, with the Bucks in 2013, it actually came down on a Sunday morning in April, about a week and a half before the draft. I was playing a softball game on Long Island. Uh, was I remember it was a chilly morning and we were about to get ready to start first pitch when I checked my phone and saw that something was going down with Rebus, packed up the equipment, raced home again, and spent the next few hours, probably the next few days, writing and reporting a lot about Darrell Rebus. So, yeah, these trades happen. And they happen 24-7. You can't predict. With social media, it's a nonstop news cycle. Not like the days when that Asias trade came down and the first I saw of it was in a newspaper headline. What are the chances of that happening now? But, you know, we have lives outside of uh, of our job. And sometimes, you know, our personal lives intersect with the real job of reporting the news. And so if the Jets trade Leonard Williams... In the next few days or next week or so, I can only hope that I'm near my laptop. And that's the end of this week's show. 
want to thank everyone for tuning in. I want to thank my special guest, Ryan Khalil, Jets Center. I want to thank my producer, Jeff Scopin, for putting this all together. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Flight Deck. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts. I encourage you to do so. We've got a long way to go, and maybe the Jets can turn this thing around, and it'll get real interesting the rest of the way. So uh, keep listening to Flight Deck. And just remember, when in doubt, don't punt. Go for it.